0: The second chapter. If you remember with me, the book of Ruth is about God's redeeming love, but it's happening during a very dark time in the history of Israel. Ruth is kind of a bridge between um, the time of the judges and the time where God would give Israel their first king, the time where they would be ruled by a king like all the other nations. They just had to have a king. And so, so they ended up getting one. But before that, there's this dark time in the period of Judges where Israel is kind of in its infant stage. It's kind of in its toddler stage. If you know anything about toddlers, they learn how to walk, um, but they're not very uh, steady in their walking, and so they get lots of bumps and bruises. Um, they figure out for the first time that when you tell them something, they don't have to listen. And then, so they start exercising their will. And then uh, because of that, they don't heed the voice of their father or their mother, and they start tripping over stuff that they were warned about. And God has already been so gracious and merciful to warn them of the things that would hinder them as a nation, but if they would obey, there would be blessings attached to it. Now, during this dark time in Israel's history, just because the nation as a whole is not following God, there are still people, there's a remnant That are actually obeying the simplest of commands in the Old Testament. And because of that, we see this book of Ruth, where Ruth is a a woman who is from outside of the nation. She's outside of the the covenant relationship that the Jews have with Yahweh. And yet, when she comes in because she sees the kindness of her mother in law, um, Naomi, she experiences a lot of the blessing that comes from a woman that trusts the Lord and knows Him. One thing I want you to think about that I didn't talk about last week was the fact that Naomi's family and Elimelech, they they left when times got tough and when there was a famine in the land, they actually left in unbelief. Hey, there's a famine here. This is the land God promised to us. And they fled to the world for refuge. And the problem with that is that they stopped believing that God's promise was enough to live by. And we can do that as believers. Sometimes God has made us pure and precious and faithful promises, and he will fulfill them. But when, we, when times get tough, if we're not careful, we'll flee to the world for help rather than staying right where God has us and trust that he can take care of it. And I've been guilty of that. And I don't want to be guilty of that because there's so much blessing attached to simply trusting. And so in, the, in this case, God is faithful despite, really, Ruth's family's disobedience. They get word that there's fruitfulness in the land once again. They return to the land after losing all of the, her sons and her husband. They return to the land, and they're in mourning. They're in loss. And they arrive there, and Ruth comes along with them because she is experienced True and unadulterated love from her mother in law. She's been able to be with her through this morning, and nobody else is going to understand her like her mother in law. And she sees the kindness and she sees the benefits. And so she goes back with Ruth, excuse me, with Naomi to the land of Israel. And when they arrive there, God's already preparing the way for them to be taken care of. Women in their society were not given jobs. Women in their society were not supposed to bring home the bacon. It's just not not how it was set up. They were to have the children and and take care of things at home. But what happens is that Ruth comes back, and she's the able-bodied one. Naomi is older. Naomi comes back. She's bitter. She's had all this loss, and then Ruth comes with her, and she realizes, I can't do a lot of things, but I can do some things. And so she says, what can I do to help? So in chapter 2, we see her. Giving, uh, receiving advice from Naomi, and she goes out to glean in the fields. And it says there in the first part of chapter 2, in verse 3, she left where they lived and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she just so happened to come to the part of the field belonging to a man by the name of Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. And so she just so happened. Now, in our day and age, We, you know, we we live in a place where there's farms around, um, but she ends up at just the right farm. Now, even in our day and age, we've got farms around us. How likely is it in our valley that we would show up in somebody's farm and it's our family? Now, for some of you, you could throw a stone and you end up with your family. Uh, But for me, I'm not from here. I go to a field, I'm not going to know the person more than likely. Now, God surprised me many times when I've showed up in driveways and met people that I eventually became friends with. But here in this case, she just so happens, coincidentally, we could probably explain all the ways that will yet yeah, happen because of this, and I was in the area of my family, and, but we try to explain away the sovereignty of God. God's in control of the details, the ones we like and the ones we don't like. He's in control of them all. This wasn't luck. God was providing, and so they showed up in this field, and it just so happened that it was Boaz, and Boaz was a close relative, and so as Boaz watches her, and hears the report of how Ruth works in the field, he is intrigued by her, and he starts to bless her. So we ended last week in verse um, 12, And we'll start in verse 11 of chapter 2. It says, Boaz answered and said to to Ruth, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your family and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. And then he blesses her. He says, The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He he invokes blessing. Uh, think about this. If you read the blessing of Abraham that God gave to Abraham, he says, Blessed are those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Now Ruth is just one woman. She comes back with her mother in law. She really, in many ways, has not much to offer other than her devotion and her service to her mother-in-law, and for this unbeknownst to her, she invokes the blessing of Abraham. She invokes a promise from of old in their nation. Bless, I will bless those who bless you, God said to Abraham, and I will curse those who curse you. And Ruth walks into this blessing not knowing that it even exists, and then she gets to experience it. So she responds in verse 13 and says, "'Let me find favor in your sight.'" Now, I want to stop there because the word favor, she's not asking for a favor. Let me find grace in your sight is the word grace. Grace is never deserved. She's not walking up to him and saying, I deserve to be treated better. Please treat me good. It's not what she's saying. Let me find grace. Noah was a a righteous man in his days and what it, the Bible says about him is he's found grace in the sight of the Lord. He was still a sinful man. He, he was this hero of the Bible, but the reality is he's had, he still had a sin problem. He's human like the rest of us. And What it says about him is that he found grace in the sight of the Lord. He found undeserved, unmerited favor from God. And so in this case, she asks for grace. Come here, Excuse me. She says, Let me find grace in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. I'm not one of you. You've treated me like family, even though I'm not your family. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So, she's invited to the table of a Jewish male. Now, if you read about the disciples in the New Testament, um, and if you read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who were religious, those who who supposedly followed the law, many times they became self-righteous, and they would not eat with sinners and tax collectors. That's why they would be so mad at Jesus. Look at this. Man, he claims to be God, and yet he eats with sinners. And they were just absolutely blown away by it. They were not enamored with it. They did not like it. They hated it. He's eating with unclean people. And yet what happens is Jesus invites sinners to his table because all have sinned. If he's not going to invite sinners to his table, there's nobody to invite. And so here we have, in the same token, we have Boaz inviting her to his table and blessing her And having a meal with her bread and wine or it says their vinegar so she sat beside the reapers and passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back now that will come back later she ate until she was satisfied and then she took some with her who's she thinking about she's not thinking about herself she's hungry and she's working but we'll find out later that she's actually keeping some back because they don't have microwave meals at the house. They showed up with nothing. She's gleaning so they can go cook something. But you've got to thresh the wheat. You've got to have the grain. This is already cooked. She can basically take home a sack to her mother-in-law, and she's, she can have some Cheerios, some roasted grain. And so she's going to have something for her, So when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Now in those days, there was a law. The law said you go and glean your field, you go and harvest everything, but you don't go back and take a second pass. Get what you can on the first pass and leave the rest. Why? To benefit the poor. If we glean everything, there's nothing left. But if we take everything we can from the field and leave something back for somebody else that might be a sojourner coming through, they can gather up some for themselves and they can be fed. They can be satisfied by the land. And this land, this people of God was always meant to be a blessing to the whole world. In your nation, all the other nations will be blessed, is what God said to Abraham. And so it wasn't just that they would go out and take food to people, but There would be so much fruitfulness in their land that they wouldn't have to harvest it all and that whatever they would leave, the scraps of the table, if you will, those that didn't have anything would have plenty. This land was meant to satisfy. This was abundant life, a picture of it. And so God, I don't know about you guys, but I know that God always provides for us what we need, but he also always provides for us really more than we actually need. And we have the opportunity to use it all for ourselves, or to leave some for others to glean from, not so we can be uh, glorified, but so that others can benefit and go, man, God's been good to them, and they're sharing it. They're so gracious. And graciousness, simple, quiet graciousness, stands out because no one's gracious. I want me and mine. I feed my family, and heck with you guys else. And, and the reality is God's people are not to be that way. We're supposed to be about others first. Really, we're supposed to be about Jesus first, and he gives us a heart for others. And so he says, let her glean even among the sheaves. What he's saying there is she doesn't have to wait till you guys are done harvesting. Why don't you let her glean even close up to the equipment that you're using to cut it up? And then he actually goes on to say, uh, and also let grain... Fall from your bundles purposefully for her let, that she may glean those and do not rebuke her when she gets too close. So he's actually telling them, hey, harvest right and don't drop anything, but if you drop a little, make sure you drop it close to her so she can get a little extra. And that's how the Lord is with us. The Lord, he gives us his word and he, he gives it to us so we can experience the goodness of being refreshed and fed by it. But I think sometimes also he wants us to, to take a little bit of it and drop it for others to make it easier to understand. Hopefully that's what I'm doing for you on a Sunday morning. God's desire is not that it would be hard to understand his word. What it says in some of the Old Testament prophets is that they would read the word. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, it says they, would, they sat down, they read the word. The person reading it, Nehemiah, gave the sense in other words, he, he made it easy to understand. He brought the context into it, and then everybody benefited from it. If I become this ivory tower theologian and I start using these huge words and I overcomplicate it, I'm actually making it more difficult for you to get to Jesus. I'm getting in the way. So if I sometimes make some funny comments or if I seem like I'm oversimplifying it, it's, not, it's just because that's how I understand it. That's what helps me get a, a clearer picture. That w- that's what helps me get closer to the Lord rather than feeling like I'm being held back because I, I just don't get very complicated things. I don't. I'm simple. And, and I think most human beings really are. And that's okay. Jesus didn't make it overtly complicated. When he taught, he used examples from what the people were looking at around them, and he used them because he knew that his audience would understand it. And so she's gleaning, and she's not to be rebuked for doing so. He's blessing her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, or a full basket of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. So she not only brings this ephah of barley but she also brings back, hey, here's a meal ready to eat, an MRE. You know, straight from Boaz's table, I have brought you the blessing that I've received from serving you. Here's some roasted grain. And it says there, so she, she brought it all out, and her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today? I think she was surprised. She, she got an ephah in a day, one person, which is a lot. And so there's something to this, and Naomi's like, wait a minute, how did you get all this? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. She's saying, somebody noticed you and made sure that you got extra because nobody gleans this much in one day. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, remember, this is the woman who came back and said, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She came back bitter. And there's this glint of excitement. There's this glint of joy. There's this glint of, oh my goodness, God's, God's fulfilling his promises, even though I've been bitter at him. And She says to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. This kindness that he's exercised towards us is not only towards us, but it's also towards your dead husband and my dead husband and my two dead sons. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said... He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So chapter 2 is a picture of Ruth really uh, working. She's working. She's doing with her hands what she can. Chapter 1 is uh, basically, I wrote down here, they come back into the land weeping. And Warren Wearsby, who likes alliteration, says chapter 2 is Ruth working. She's weeping, but she starts working. She does what she can to help the situation. And then chapter 3 is a picture of her waiting. Weeping, working, working waiting. Most of life is surrounded around that. There's sorrow in this life. There's hard times. So we can either give up or we can work. We can trust the Lord and do with our hands what he's given us the ability to do. But then there's a lot of waiting. God's made promises to his people, but they're not all fulfilled yet. So what do we do in the meantime? We do what no one likes to do. We do a four-letter word. We wait. We wait upon the Lord those who wait upon the Lord, the psalmist wrote, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. That's not the psalmist. That's Isaiah 40. And and, and the reality is, is as we wait upon the Lord, He gives us strength, which I was thinking about that this morning because many times when we're tired, the last thing we want to do is go to church. We're worn out. But I read somebody, you know, one of our modern-day philosophers, probably stole it, put it on a picture, put it on the internet. Now it's a meme, whatever that means. And it said this, not going to church when you're tired is not like not eating when you're hungry. Not going to church when you're tired is like not eating when you're hungry. You're tired because you need rest. And I'm not talking about sleep. You need rest for your soul. And rest comes from being filled up full with the Word of God. It comes from being around other people that are in the same struggle that you're in and finding out you're not alone and praying with one another and blessing one another and hugging one another and just being broken together. We can't fix each other's problems. Reality is the church is full of people that are all broken. We're not all getting together because we need to get in each other's lives and fix it all. If that's the case, what do we need Jesus for? Jesus is the one that fixes the problems. But we all have this duty, this accountability. We all have a responsibility to continue to point each other back to Jesus. Man, my problem's so bad right now. You may not look into someone when they're in the middle of a problem and go, well, you just need to trust Jesus more. What's your problem? You're faithless. But it's an opportunity to go, well, let's pray together. Let's see what God will do Let's witness to one another. And then we can be witnesses to others of his faithfulness when we celebrate together. Did you see how God answered that prayer? Did you see how he came through and provided? I thought it was impossible, and it wasn't. And so here we are in chapter 3. It says, Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? Of course, at this point, she's like, what's, what's your point? Okay, he's a relative. Great. But what she says is, now Boaz, in fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. He, he apparently was a pretty hardworking guy. He didn't just leave it all up to his workers, his servants, his gleaners. He, he was working into the long hourly night, which tells you he either was a workaholic or he was single and he had the time. In this case, we find out that Boaz was single and he had the time. He was doing with his hands. He was staying busy. He wasn't out frolicking around. He wasn't out partying. He was working hard because there were people that, that relied upon him for the provision. So he was in the threshing floor. She says, therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So this is kind of odd for us in our western culture but he's working she's instructing her how to approach Boaz. See Boaz, the idea of him being a close relative, he's a goel. And in the Hebrew that means a kinsman redeemer. Someone who is close. In in families in the nation of Israel when there were no men descendants, when someone would either lose the men in their family or there wouldn't be any sons, they would need somebody to carry on the family name, and so someone would have the opportunity to redeem them, to buy their property, but also to take on the responsibility of the family members. And in the case that there was someone that didn't have any children, the brother or the next of kin, all the way down the line, would have the responsibility and the opportunity to redeem them and actually to, to fulfill the role of a husband and to provide children. Now, to us, that seems kind of weird because we like to choose who we marry, but to someone who cannot provide, to someone who doesn't have someone to provide for them, this is a huge blessing. And so Boaz is going to get approached by her, but she says, when you approach, wash yourself, anoint yourself. Now to us, that's maybe no big deal. We bathe pretty regularly. Uh, My brother likes to take two and three showers a day, but to them, it might be once a month. That they would wash. That water wasn't as readily available as it is here. But the reality is, uh, to wash and to show up anointed, uh, being put on your perfume, uh, you're you're basically approaching someone. You smell very nice. Uh, approaching him with this fragrance, she, he says, "Put." She says, "Put on your best garment and go down to the fre- threshing floor." And so. She does this, but verse 4 says, Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in and uncover his feet. And when you uncover his feet and lie down, he will tell you what you should do. (laughs) So this is kind of weird, right? I mean, uh, number one, the dude's been working all day. Do I really want to lay next to his feet? You know, (laughs) number two, this is kind of a little dicey. Like, I would never tell my daughter to go and meet up with the guy that she likes. if I don't know if Ruth likes him, and then like uncover his feet when he goes to bed at night after you get done creeping on him. Lay next to his feet and then cover yourself and wait for him to tell you what to do. Like this sounds sketchy on so many levels and somewhat inappropriate, but what she's telling her to do is it's a, it's a symbolic thing. It's a cultural thing. When he goes, she goes in and finds him where he is and Humbles herself and lays next to his feet, and covers herself with the edge of his blanket. The idea is, I want you to cover me. I I need you to. I'm asking you to fulfill the duty of a kinsman redeemer. I'm asking you to provide for me. I'm asking you to take care of our family. Um, will you fulfill that role? And so it's beautiful. It's not what we would see in a movie many times, which is somebody going over to somebody's house after a date or after prom or whatever. This is, it's, it's holy, it's pure. There's no impurity in it. As a matter of fact, we find out that he's actually older than her. And so he, she may not even be attracted to him at first. But she needs somebody to take care of her and to take care of her mother-in-law. And he's the closest of kin. And so she submits to Naomi telling her this because she wasn't raised with the law. Think about the simplicity of Ruth's faith. She's exercising faith. You want me to do what? You want me to go where? Next to his feet, you know, like all these responses. But here's the deal. As Christians, God's given us some pretty simple commands, and we spend all of our time questioning it. I don't see anything in the text about Ruth going, why? Why? She's just grateful to be a part of this nation now. She's she's experienced the blessing of the law being lived out. She's experienced food in her mouth because of it. She's grateful to no longer be in a nation. She expected to be treated unkindly, and she shows up, and all these people are just taking care of her. And so her mother-in-law tells her to do what might seem to her odd, and she just does it. She doesn't question She doesn't throw a fit. She doesn't say, I have my rights. I'm going home. I don't like this. It's weird. She just says, okay. She takes a step of faith. She does what she's told, and there's blessing attached to it because ultimately he responds to her. Now, it happened, verse 8, at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself. All of a sudden, he realized there was somebody there and there was a woman lying at his feet, and he said, who are you? And verse 8 continues, so she answered and said, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. What had she experienced so far from Boaz? Gifts, right? Over and over, he's making sure she's got extra. He's making sure that she goes home full, satisfied, invites her to his table. But notice that she wants the gift giver, not just the gifts. I think many times people come to Jesus and they want what he has to give, and yet the blessing comes from wanting him and experiencing him and the closeness. Uh, And so she goes in and she says, "I, I want the giver, not the gift giver or the gifts. Um, Then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. Now he's rich, but he's not young. He's not a spring chicken. He's not Fabio. And so he says, blessed are you, you've approached me, whether poor or rich, you haven't gone after young men. And she could have. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. She had virtue. She had character. I also want you to know, notice where she met him. There's a lot of ladies in here. Notice where she met who's ultimately going to be her husband. She didn't have to go searching for him. She was serving her mother-in-law. She was fulfilling her responsibilities. She was working hard. And that's where she met her future husband. You don't have to go to bars. You don't have to compromise on your faith. You don't have to go home with a guy for him to like you. Let God produce character in you, and God will provide the right guy. She was wearing work clothes when she met him. She was wearing work clothes. She wasn't all prettied up. She didn't have on her war paint. You know, she, she wasn't all dolled up. when she, All he knew about her is what she looked like when she was working in a field sweating all day. This is the first time he's ever met her when she's all dolled up. And he responds, and it doesn't say because she looked great dressed up that he loved her. It says because of the virtue and the character that she had, she, he was already one. He was already, she had already found favor in his sight before she ever looked good looked good. And and I love that. Young ladies, don't compromise, please. I've watched it for too long. I've seen too many people go, I can't wait any longer. I just want somebody to love me. And they go about it all the wrong ways and they end up with somebody that doesn't really love them. Be who you are. Be the mess. Have the crazy hair. Be the goofball. Just be you. And do what God puts in front of you, and he will bring the right guy. I promise you. And he'll be jacked up too. But if he loves Jesus, that makes it all good. That love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter says. And so, anyway, I'm off my hobby horse. So she responds and says now, well, excuse me, I lost my place. Uh, Verse 11, and now my daughter, he says to her, do not fear, I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, Uh uh-oh, however, there's, there's a relative that's closer than I. And by the law, that would mean that he would have first dibs, if you will. That's not the right term, but that's, You get what I'm saying. He says in verse 13, Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So he's making an oath. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize her. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, "Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it." And when she held it, he measured six, eph- excuse me, ephahs of barley and laid it on her. And then she went into the city. This is this is a dowry. He's he's making a promise, but he's also paying the bride price. He's sending her back full with more than she could glean. But also, in those days, when you would marry a woman, you would pay a bride price to the family as a commitment. Like, hey, it's worth, she's worth me, to me she's worth more than, than I can give you, but here's a down payment. Not that he's buying her, but he's just showing that this means a, a, a bunch to me, and I'm going to do what I can. And so verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, and she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So chapter one, Ruth doesn't know Boaz at all. She's just doing what she does. Chapter two, she's receiving gifts from him. He's wealthy and powerful, and yet he shows her kindness. That's all she knows. This man's wealthy and powerful. He's being kind to me. Chapter three, under his covering, (laughs) she yields herself at his feet. Chapter one, she didn't know him. Chapter two, she's experienced his kindness. Chapter three, she's humbling herself before him. She's presenting herself and saying, would you take care of me? And then chapter four, she gets married to him. And everything that he has belongs to her. She goes from nothing to everything just because of him. And yet I want to point out that his kindness towards her is not because he feels like, okay, I guess I'll take care of you. He's passionate. He cares about her. He loves her. And so he's a picture of Jesus. Because in your walk with Jesus, there was a time that you didn't know him. And then there was a time where he, even though you didn't know him, started giving you gifts and taking care of your needs. And whether or not you recognize it, he still does it. And then as you recognize that those good gifts are coming from him, what happens is that you come to a point where you're like, man, he loves me so much, how can I not give myself to him? And surrender. And before you know it, you're his bride. Now, men, that's weird for us, right? We don't like to think ourselves as a bride, especially in today's day and age, that's going on but this isn't like that. We are the bride of Christ, the church. He loves us. He's done everything that Boaz and more did for Ruth. That's the same case between us and Jesus. And so in chapter 3, we see this satisfaction that she finds in her relationship with the Lord. And I'm just going to read through it because I I don't want to stop here. Let's see the fruition of what's taking place here. So Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. The gate was where all the decisions of the city would be made. It's where they would make contracts with witnesses there. It'd be like our courthouse. It's an official place to make gatherings and agreements. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. And he's wise about how he interacts. So he came aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here with us. So they sat down and then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land, which belonged to our brother, Elimelech. And I thought to inform you saying, buy it back because there was always, if you had to sell your family property at the end of like seven years or something like that, you had the option to buy it back. So you could continue to have your land again. You didn't lose it forever. If you had to sell it to pay off debt, you would lose your inheritance in the land, and so you had the option to buy it back later at the same price. No usury, no uh, interest. You couldn't charge interest to your relatives. And so, I thought to inform you, verse 4, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. And if you will buy it back, if you will redeem it, but if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. What does it mean to redeem something? That's what Jesus has done for us. He's redeemed us. Maybe you've sang that before and didn't really know what it it meant. Maybe you've sung it. Sang it? Sung. Sang sung. But redeem means to set free by paying a price. Set free from debt. Set free from poverty. Set free from powerlessness. Whatever it might be. Uh, but he says you can redeem this land. And then Boaz said, one, the, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of... Na-, he, so, sorry, I skipped a big part of it there. And he said, the close relative said, well, I'll redeem it. I'll buy it. Why not? I could use another field. I don't really need it, but I could use it. And then Boaz said, but here's, here's an exception. Here's, here's another thing that goes along with the land. There's people involved. He says, uh, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. So um, there's also this kind of, there's this young woman, and they don't have any descendants that are men to carry on the name, and so uh, she needs somebody to perpetuate the family name. And so Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field, there's also this going on. And so the close relative said, well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. He would lose a piece of his own inheritance to this family. And so he says, uh, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, perhaps he was also married and he's like, I don't know if I need to be bringing in another wife in my house. Maybe we should do something else. Mama ain't going to be happy. And so, um, now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man, the man who, uh, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel, which is weird to us, but just is what it is. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, "Buy it for yourself." So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, the root, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I, will, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate his name. Here's the deal the inheritance, everything that goes along with perpetuating this name, meant that it was no longer about Boaz. Boaz's name didn't get perpetuated, but instead, Ruth's dead husband's name gets perpetuated. That's pretty selfless. We're all pretty proud of our family name. He's giving his life to perpetuate someone else's name. Jesus gave his life to perpetuate his father's kingdom. And so, it says there, Um, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. So he would take off his shoe and say, hey, I I forfeit my right to this land. And so what's interesting about this is that Boaz was rich. He was powerful. He didn't need more fields. He's kind of like the man who found a hidden treasure in a field. And when he found it, he took it, he buried it in the field. Jesus told this parable about the man that finds a hidden treasure. He finds this hidden treasure in the field. He hides it. He goes back to his home. He sells everything he owns. And then he comes back with the money and he buys that field. Is he buying the field? Does he care about the field? No. What does he care about? The hidden treasure. What is the hidden treasure? The hidden treasure is you and I. The hidden treasure is Ruth for Boaz, he, he didn't care about no field. He wants to take care of this woman. He loves her. He, he didn't have to sell everything, but he gives up the right to perpetuate his own name to marry this woman that he loves. Jesus did that for us. He gave up all of his rights so that he could perpetuate his father's kingdom in you and I. He sold the he bought the field. What I love about him buying the field is that he's buying all of us, not just the redeemable part. He's buying our past. He's buying our present. He's buying all of our failures and our sin. He bought it all. The whole kit and caboodle. Every issue you carried into your relationship with Jesus, he bought it. He was okay with it, by the way. He, lo- he loves the mess. He loves you. He doesn't love you because you cleaned yourself up. He doesn't love you because you anointed yourself. He loved you when you were a sweaty mess working in the field. Before you knew him. And that's why I love this book. Because I carry a lot of junk in my relationship with Jesus. I brought more baggage than anybody. I still carry some of it. Because I haven't let go of it. Put it down. He's okay with it. But he doesn't want us to be bound up by it anymore. He wants to set us free. And until we let go of it, he still loves us. I don't, you know, it's just, that's the process. And, uh, so all that, all that said, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, "We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. They bless her, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in where? Bethlehem. Sound familiar? What well, we find out is this is the great, 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 great grandson, or grandpa. Grandpa. I did that backwards." of Jesus of Nazareth. May you be famous in blessing. This is prophetic. And so it says here, "...may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and when he went to her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son." Then the women said to Naomi, "'Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day "'without a close relative, a kinsman-redeemer. "'And may his name be famous in Israel.'" It is. It's famous. "'And may he be to you a restorer of life "'and a nourisher of your old age "'for your daughter-in-law who loves you, "'who is better to you than seven sons has borne him.'" Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. That was, uh, she was a, old old King James says that she, she was a wet nurse, so she would nurse her grandson. That was common in that day. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. And now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David, who generations down the road begot Joseph and then Jesus. I skipped a bunch of names cuz I don't have memorized. But that's the story of Ruth. Sorrow to gladness, but not without working and waiting. So we look forward to the time where our redemption will be fulfilled, where our wedding feast will celebrate our wedding to Jesus. We've wept, we've sorrowed, We've worked right now, and we're in a time of working and waiting. But the fulfillment is in the kingdom where we will be married to Christ and celebrate for all eternity. So in the meantime, don't grow weary in working and waiting because the promises that God made to us through Jesus are yes and yes, and they will be fulfilled. He is faithful. So let's pray. Father, this book starts with three funerals, and it closes with a wedding. And our life is full of funerals, but it ultimately closes with a wedding. We are your bride, Father. And though I don't completely understand what that looks like or, or what that means, that means that everything that you have, Jesus, is mine in Christ. And because of that, I and the Father are one, and yet the Father... Is, is apart from me at the time. We've been given the down payment of the Holy Spirit, the bride price, and we yearn for the day where you will you will not rest until all of this has been accomplished and everything was accomplished on the cross. And so, Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you that there is a promise for those who wait that your promises will be fulfilled. Help us not to get ahead of you. Help us not to compromise Help us not to lose heart because if we do not lose heart in due season, we will harvest a harvest of righteousness. So, Father, thank you for loving us, pure and simple. I don't know why you love me, but I'm grateful. And I pray that everyone here is encouraged that your love is not conditional. You love us with a redeeming love. You love us with a pure love. You love us with a love that will not let anything hold you back from completely redeeming every part of our lives, help us to be willing to let you. Help us to wash ourselves in the water of the word. Help us to uh, anoint ourselves. Let you anoint us with your Holy Spirit and help us to come to your feet and, and hide under the shadow of your blanket until the time where you make all things right. In Jesus' name, amen.